Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're going to do something that we do every now and then, which is ask people who regularly appear on the show what they've been reading, what they've been thinking, what's kind of exciting them at the moment about politics. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Look, not read yet. See? Genuinely, this is my reading list. Sad, isn't it? Unbroken. Unbroken. A cup of freshly ground coffee, which is a new development. I recommend a coffee grinder if you don't have one. So give you a chance to hear a bit more about their personal reflections and give us a chance to just step back and reflect ourselves on what's been a completely amazing, tumultuous year in politics. This week it's going to be me and a few other of our regular panellists and we'll be carrying this on at moments through the summer. Hi, I'm Maha Rafi Atal, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you probably know me because I come on here to talk about American politics sometimes, Indian politics sometimes, occasionally things having to do with politics and the economy. Okay, so my name is Chris Bickerton. I'm a reader in modern European politics here at the Department of Politics and International Studies. I think what I'm ultimately interested in deep down is... Europe. My name is Finbar Livesey and I'm Senior Lecturer in Public Policy here in Polis. My research work looks at globalisation, specifically the end of globalisation. And I've just finished a book called From Global to Local, The Making of Things and the End of Globalisation, which talks about how we are going to be making things much closer to you and how that changes the trade pattern and how that changes the relationship between countries. I grew up in the UK, but also spending time in France. There's not a particular country that I specialise in. I've worked a lot on the European Union uh, and Europe as a whole, but I'm, I'm interested in Italian politics, Spanish politics, Dutch politics, German politics. Uh, all of that fascinates me. Most of my research is in developing countries, so I do some work in India, I do some work in Kenya, some work in South Africa. What I mostly work on is corporations as political actors, so how corporations exercise power in politics through influencing government, but also how corporations exercise power just day to day in the communities where they operate. Over the last year, it's been, unfortunately, a lot of proofs. Um, but a lot of things, obviously, in support of the book, there's a lot of things in there, like The Box by Mark Levinson, which is a fantastic history of containerization. And as I say that sentence, I can hear people going, you got excited about a history, about a box. Um, it is a fantastic read because it explains really well the beginnings of shipping containers and why they really are an incredible technology that changed the nature of trade. Um, aside from that, to be honest, for light relief, I have a weakness for murder mysteries. So I've been working my way through... Ali Griffiths and McHaren's new series, Slow Horses. And I'm looking forward to Louise Penny's new book coming out this autumn. Okay, the book I'm currently reading is called Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing Our Digital Future. It's a kind of business book by Andrew McAfee and Eric, I'm going to get his name wrong, Brunjolfsson. They wrote an earlier book, famous book about the coming new machine age. They're obsessed basically with robots. I'm a tiny bit obsessed with robots. But I'm particularly interested in, as I guess lots of people are, the question about whether the robots are going to take all our jobs. And this is one of those books, and there are a few of them now, that is saying no, we should be much cheerier 
We had a guy visiting Cambridge recently, a really interesting uh, lawyer and writer about technology called Frank Pasquale, and he makes this case very strongly that these machines are going to augment what human beings do, and actually there'll be a whole new kind of jobs and professions which are for human beings to do the things that the machines can't do, basically in conjunction with the machines. And so this book has an example, and I'm going to apply it to politics in a second, which is basically medicine in the future will be you'll go and see your doctor and you'll meet a human being and a machine and they'll be sitting next to each other holding hands and the machine will tell you what's wrong with you and then the doctor will talk to you about how to cope with that information and the doctor will do the kind of empathy and actually the doctor might not need a huge amount of medical training need much more training in empathy and the machine will be much better than the doctor at actually knowing what the medical diagnosis is but that doesn't mean the doctor is out of work might be more doctors, might be different ways of becoming a doctor. So the question for me is, what does that mean for politics? Because that's what I'm interested in. And I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it might be good for lots of professions, but I'm not sure about politics. And it is, we are living through a moment in politics. The week that I'm speaking, the guy who's been appointed judge for the Grenfell Tower inquiry is under a lot of pressure, including from the MP, for Kensington to stand down because he lacks empathy. So the thought is, there's this crusty old judge who presumably knows a lot about the things that you need to know about to do an inquiry like this. But maybe that's not what matters, or increasingly that's not what matters, possibly even, because people talk about this in relation to law as well as medicine, machines could do that better. Actually, if you wanted to know what was wrong with that building, we're quite close to the point where you might want to ask a machine. And what the human beings are there for is to tell you how to feel better about it. That could be the future of politics. And I, so it makes me uncomfortable, but I think it makes me uncomfortable because I think I'm not really good at empathy. That's not my thing. And I'm aware that's probably a failing, a kind of human failing. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's bad if politics goes more down that route. But I think there's also a real danger that politics kind of gets left behind in this world. Do we really just have politicians who have all of these smart networks and machines who devise policy for them, and then they just make us feel better about that policy? So there's still a little part of me which always defaults to the dystopian, and I can see this might be good, but... Mm. I have found myself going back repeatedly to the civil rights era in American politics, in that I think people who are listening to this podcast have probably worked out that I am extremely disturbed by what is happening and I'm trying to work out what can be done about it in a way that extends beyond academia and analysis to trying to get involved as a citizen in some capacity. And I find myself thinking that the only movement I can think of that has faced down this set of forces about xenophobia and racism and bigotry in American politics and their expression in a kind of thuggish vigilantism that we're starting to see is the civil rights movement. And so I found myself going back to old Lyndon Johnson speeches, going back to John Lewis's memoirs, and recently last month, sitting down and watching I Am Not Your Negro, which I really recommend people spending time with. It's not that long. I think it's less than two hours. I Am Not Your Negro is a dramatization of James Baldwin, the African-American writer and novelist and civil rights activist, was trying just before he died to write a memoir of the civil rights movement that was framed around the people he had known who had been assassinated over the course of that movement. 
and he didn't finish it and the publisher had the notes and those notes have been you know published in different forms before and what they've now done is gotten somebody to narrate those notes and then display them with images and video footage of the movement but what's interesting about the film is they intercut between the chapters images and video of contemporary protests against police brutality, against other forms of discrimination that are taking place in the U.S. today. Um, and and that movie, I think, will sit with me for a while in terms of thinking about what types of activism work and what the human cost that you might have to pay in the course of that is. So I've been trying to collect books together, and there's a few that are out now on this theme of the end of Europe. It's funny because now people have seen the election of of a very pro-European French president. The Eurozone is growing a tiny bit. Everyone thinks that things are back to normal and are all hunky-dory, which I think they're not. But we have, because of the year that we've had, we've got these books coming out which have this theme about Europe coming apart. Some are definitely better than others. There's one by somebody called Douglas Murray called The End of Europe. There's one by what was France's defence minister for just... tiny period of time, Sylvie Goulard, uh, called Goodbye Europe. There's a book by this uh, floppy-haired Belgian federalist called Guy Verhofstadt, and it's called Europe's Last Chance. And the one that I've found most interesting, so it's the one that I uh, have a bit more to say about, is a book called After Europe by this Bulgarian intellectual Ivan Krastev, very interesting guy. So the theme is the end of Europe. He calls it after Europe. What is it that makes this a bit more interesting, a bit more different? He doesn't look at the different institutions and sees whether they work or not. He doesn't focus just on the Eurozone crisis. So he's got a slightly bigger perspective. Um, One thing he writes about is how migration has transformed European societies. It's one of the themes. And the other one is why Europeans don't trust their elites anymore. And those are the two big themes in his book. But the one thing that I think he says which was maybe the most interesting is that he says, if you're somebody like him, so he's a generation who grew up in Eastern Europe and who experienced the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union. And what he says is that people of his generation from Eastern Europe have a different attitude to change, which is that they know that things can all of a sudden change very quickly. And the feeling that he has had over the last year or so looking at Europe is that he has a sense of deja vu. Now, if you think about Western Europeans, I think of somebody like myself, we've never really experienced dramatic political change in the way that he has. So when we see what's going on, we tend to assume, I suppose, naturally almost, that things are going to somehow get back to the way they were before. And he says, from his perspective, he doesn't think of change that way. Actually, for him, this is very much a case of decline, disintegration, uh, ending, and that he's not particularly surprised, but he does think about it with a great deal of foreboding. The thing I'm going to be reading in the summer first is Frank Trentman's Empire of Things. Frank is a leading historian, and he's written quite a daunting book, 858 pages, of essentially the history of our relationship to objects and consumerism. And given what I do is around how we think about making things and how that changes over time, this is really fundamental to what I'm doing. And so I'm actually really excited to get into this because it looks like a fantastic read. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The, the things that I've read recently are because I'm like a few people in this building trying to write a book. And the book that I'm meant to be writing this summer, I hope I'm going to write it, is about the end of democracy. It's called How Democracy Ends. And it's trying to think about a world in which democracy seems to be really struggling in lots of ways. But my feeling is that we're trapped with these kind of old-fashioned views of what democratic failure looks like. We kind of have these 1930s, 1970s visions of generals coming on TV and barking at us that democracy is over and people being rounded up and tanks on the streets. And I just don't think that's going to happen. So I think when democracy fails, it'll fail in ways that we're not familiar with or we, we kind of don't immediately recognise. And I've read a couple of books about this. I'm writing a chapter about coups because I don't think there's going to be a coup in somewhere like America or Britain anytime soon. But there are different ways in which you can undo democracy without having generals on TV barking at us. I've just reread, I mentioned it on the podcast a few weeks ago, Chris Mullins fantastic book, A Very British Coup, which he wrote... I think in 1989, it's, it's at the end of the 80s. And it's about, basically, because Corbyn was around then, I don't know if he was thinking, I don't imagine he thought that Corbyn would be the one, but a Corbyn-style, Tony Benn-style, far-left Labour politician winning a general election, and how the deep state, the British state, would make sure that this politician didn't survive. And it's this weird combination of being very dated and amazingly prescient, and it starts with a description of the election night when the Corbyn-style politician, he's called Harry Perkins. It's a little bit more charismatic in some ways than Corbyn, but in other ways very familiar. When he wins the election, and it was really like reading a description of our recent election, though Corbyn didn't win it. But it just has these moments where people are watching TV and the results come in and, and a seat like Kensington, which people thought couldn't ever fall to labour, falls to labour. And there's a kind of collective gulp around the nation as people suddenly realise this could be happening. And then there's a list of various seats that suddenly have become safe labour seats. And in the novel, one of these seats is Cambridge. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's true too. What then happens in the novel is that newspaper magnates and the secret services in Britain and people who control money and finance in a semi-conspiracy kind of way decide to undermine the new regime. So at the moment, we're, I think, slightly obsessed with the deep state and people like Trump. But at some point, maybe it'll be here. Not a right-wing populist, but a serious left-wing, far left-wing, semi-populist politician like Corbyn will win. And then we will see what does happen. And this book is bleak. It suggests that it w wouldn't be allowed to stand. There was a possibility if Mélenchon had got through in the French election. I mean, that would have been another case, you know, a Mélenchon premiership in France. The French deep state would have had tough choices to take if Bernie Sanders had won and not Donald Trump. But it is different. The left version is different from the right version. So the right wing version, you've got Trump saying he's going to take America out of NATO. And then he doesn't because he doesn't really believe in it. 
But what happens when you get a politician who does believe in it? Because with Trump, what the deep state does is it kind of brings him back on side. So we probably haven't seen the full-blown version of this yet. If a very British coup is properly prescient, then it is going to be fairly ugly. I think a lot has changed since then. It's it, Apart from anything else, it's amazing reading a book that's so prescient and yet completely predates the internet. So there's no sort of fake news or anything like that. And yet it feels it feels like it's now. I really recommend it. So this has been a tumultuous year for politics. And I think if you've been listening to us here, it turns out that we don't know half as much as we think we do. Um, and so I found myself reaching for people who do. One of the more interesting exchanges that I've been following over the past year and a bit on social media and a little bit in print is a ongoing conversation between Chris Arnaud, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, who is a photojournalist for The Guardian based in the States, traveling around a lot of rural and kind of suburban working class communities. And unlike a lot of people who are kind of going to Trump country trying to figure out what's going on, he's not only interviewing white people, right? So there is some diversity in the the range of voices that he's getting. And he's having an interesting conversation with James Sarawicki, who is the business and finance correspondent for The New Yorker, although I think he's now going on sabbatical to write some kind of book. And that exchange, a lot of it is about to what extent what's happening now in American politics, and I think potentially in other Western democracies, can be explained by analyzing through class or analyzing through race. And it's probably the most sophisticated version of that argument, which has been happening in a number of places on the internet that I have seen because both of them are taking the other position very seriously. So my other sort of reading project for the summer is to complete the 10 volumes of the Maigret stories by a Belgian writer called uh, Georges Simenon. He created this character that became very, very famous of the inspector Maigret. What's interesting about this, I mean, I do like reading sort of detective fiction. That's kind of something that I read just for fun. I like it because there's an element of nostalgia. I mean, the stories started, I think, in the very early 1930s and take you all the way through into the 1960s. So if you read them all together, they cover, you know, French sort of 20th century history pretty well. And you see uh, certainly Paris changing. Some of the areas which were so run down that were virtually slums are cleaned up. The crime in, in Paris moves from different places. It changes in nature as well. He tends to always end up in the 19th arrondissement where always something nasty is going on. But I think also he is a very skilled writer. And in terms of detective fiction, the one thing he doesn't do is that he never judges his criminals. Migri is famous for being on pretty good terms with most of the people that he actually arrests. So running throughout this all of these stories is a kind of moral ambivalence about where the truth lies or whether you can really condemn someone from a moral sense. You can legally, but whether morally you should judge them. And the final thing is is that it's um, there's no gore whatsoever. There's no real violence. I mean, it's in an age of sort of where things have to be very extreme in order to be real. This is totally moderate and sort of soft, but nevertheless very compelling and very thrilling. Uh, if nobody's read any Migré before... Uh, pick one up in whatever order, it doesn't matter, and have a go. Uh, they're absolutely fantastic. Similar to my book on the end of globalization, but coming from a different perspective, Stephen King's book, Grave New World. He was the chief economist for HSBC, and he does a number of very high-flying things now. But he's written this book basically saying, here comes history to bite you. 
and globalization is not inevitable, which chimes with quite a lot of what I'm thinking about as well. But it seems like we've landed at a point in time where a number of people have pieces out all basically saying what we thought was inevitable around globalization isn't. And we have to really update our stories. We have to change our perspective very quickly to keep up as economic nationalism and protectionism is on the rise as technology changes the nature of the global economy. And as we get this strange cross-dressing between the United States and China as to who is actually the standard bearer for globalization, if there is anyone left. And then finally, the other book I've read, Jonathan Friedland, the Guardian journalist, writes these schlocky uh, Dan Brown-style thrillers under the pseudonym Sam Bourne. And I've never read one, but I read one a couple of days ago because it's called To Kill the President. And it's about a Trump-style president. It's very obviously Trump. It's quite a quite a strange thing to read it and a sort of Steve Bannon style Machiavellian mastermind running this really grisly populist dangerous presidency and then what the people who are the representatives of the American state the Secretary of Defense the, you know, the people who sort of are the grown-ups in the room do about it and in this version what they decide they have to do about it is kill the president so I'm not saying that that's going to happen but it's another one of those books where a lot of it is complete nonsense but there are bits where you read it and you just think, oh, my God, this is like what's happening. And the thing that people say about Trump's presidency is you wouldn't believe it if it was written in a novel. So then when you read the novel and then you kind of look up and see what he's just tweeted, it just really throws you. And, and the weird thing about this one is that it is such nonsense. So in this, the kind of Steve Bannon figure, he kind of gets Trump's business rivals murdered by special forces and I don't think that's happening but there's enough in it so that the backdrop is a potential nuclear war with North Korea and a unhinged president who might take personal offense at something that the North Korean leader says and decides the only way to teach this sucker a lesson is to drop a really big bomb on him and you read those bits and you think okay so a lot of this is nonsense but and then you just have moments where you think which is the novel and which is for real um yeah, I kind of enjoyed that one. So in the realm of trying to get more involved in putting academia in dialogue with actual political practice, over the last year, I've gotten more involved in efforts to advance gender equality within academia and to try and bring some analysis of gender into the way that we think about politics and especially the way that we teach politics. And as part of that, along with a colleague, Caitlin Ball, I organized a conference here in May about gender and politics. And we brought as the keynote speaker, Masha Alohina, who is one of the leading members of the Russian band Pussy Riot. And as part of that band, she was imprisoned for a period of time after the band gave a concert in a, a sort of protest concert in a cathedral. And she came to talk about her experience in, you know, in her activism and in her music and then in prison and the way in which that's affected how she does political activism now. And she and the other band member have now started a foundation that campaigns on prison rights and human rights in Russia and around the world. And I asked her what she makes of the political moment that we're now experiencing in Europe, America, and other parts of the West. The main things about current politics now is conservative turn. And I think this is a call for all those people who are not agree with this turn to unite 
and uh, to write. <laughs> and I think um, actually Brexit happened and Trump winning happened because all those people who believe in freedom, in choice, in democracy somehow thought that all these things, all these issues will exist with them for forever and they don't have to fight for them and this is not true if you are not fighting for for things which you believe your opponents will take the power and i think this is like what's happening now you can look to the russia as an example of what can happen if the opponents will taking the power You can read about gay prisons in Chechnya region, you can read about political murders, about everyday violence against the political oppositioners. And just imagine, do you want this situation or, or not? I think you don't want. <laughs> I think uh, like the main kind of problem is is an indifference of people indifference and fear mm -hmm. these are the things which uh, i think all the people should overcome the form uh, of the protests of riot of this overcoming should be any form really i started um, my activism from like usual activism i was organizing rallies and uh, like collecting signatures and so on and after that i i met uh, girls from from pussy riot and after that i i because they put me to prison i start to like read law and start to to fight inside prison so i think um, You just can look around and uh, feel what uh, you can do and and do it. Just don't uh, afraid to do it because all the fear is usually go away when you are doing something because action is like stronger than any any fear. <laughs> Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore and we will be tweeting links to everything that's been mentioned on this week's episode and if anything happens for another panel to discuss what's going on and we'll be back in the autumn with a relaunch, a new partner and lots of exciting guests. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. It feels like after a really just crazy frenetic year, again, you wouldn't believe it in a novel, everyone is just taking a pause. And it's, again, strange to look back on this year because when people take a pause, they try and normalize it a bit, I think. So there's sort of maybe Theresa May will last for a year or two. 
you know the Corbyn surge is still there but it's nothing's probably going to happen this calendar year maybe everything is going to settle down a bit but it's not because everything has changed and everything is changing so fast not just in politics in technology the economic conditions Brexit nothing nothing will settle down it's not like for two or three months the world goes on holiday from itself but we're going on holiday from it for a bit so I'm in that slightly strange phase doing this every week has been fantastic and exciting and it's and it's a great outlet because we get to in real time kind of um, freak out um, and then also try and sort of rein ourselves in a bit and be a bit analytical and I find it quite therapeutic but I'm now in that phase because of all the things that have happened the one that most shocked me was the election the recent general election because that just was something else I'm trying to persuade myself don't just think it's all going to normalize over the summer and you can come back and sort of take a deep breath and look at it afresh it has all even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks Italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Changed. 